0: It's great to see you this morning, and I wanna welcome you back to our series, The Art of Neighboring. And actually, this is our last week in this series, and I'm so glad that you're here I hope you've been having opportunities to get to know your neighbors better. This week provided some for us in our family. Part of my family got to go down the block for fireworks on Thursday night and had a bang-up time, you might say. And I, I, I just hope that you and I, that we are watching for those opportunities for how we can be more involved with neighbors We want to, for the last time perhaps as a whole group, take this neighboring test. So if you have your bulletin, go ahead and grab that and we've got the graphic up here. And just to remind you, you are the center house there in the middle and those eight houses around you are perhaps the other homes, the other houses full of people on your block or the apartments in your apartment building or maybe it's those in the cubicles near you at work. Whoever and whatever those people are, we want to be asking the question that's on the bulletin there, who is my neighbor? Do we know their names? Are we learning who they are? What is it that we're coming to know about them? What are some details? And then, most importantly, who are they on the inside? What is it that makes them who they are? What's their story? What is it that makes them tick? As we come into this last week together in this series, I want us to review where we're coming from, and you'll remember in the Gospel when the religious leader said to Jesus, well, what is the most important commandment? Jesus replied in Mark 12. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So, motivated by what Jesus said, we have been focusing on loving God with everything in us, and in so doing, loving our neighbors as ourselves Over these weeks, uh, we've looked at several different angles on this. Several weeks ago, Steve talked about SPLAG, that gut-churning compassion that Jesus had for people, and how motives matter. And then a few weeks ago, you will remember, Brian had that big vase here, and he put the large rocks in first, representing our main priorities in life, and then he added the other things, and his point was, when we prioritize ourselves with the most important things first, we'll have time for neighbors, we'll have time for this, it will all work out. Two weeks ago, Randy Shaw was here and he urged us to be blessings in our neighborhood. And then last week, Steve challenged us to just keep showing up day after day after day to faithfully be present in our neighborhoods. This weekend, we come to a close in our series by investigating this idea of the art of receiving And it's the art of receiving that can take you and me from being in a position of one-way friendship to becoming more authentic, having more mutual friendships with our neighbors. I grew up in a small town in southern Ohio, and I lived on Shelby Avenue, and Shelby Avenue was two blocks long, and our house was right in the middle, and from that spot on Shelby Avenue, I learned at a a very young age that traffic moved in two directions. The cars traveled on both sides of the street, but I learned that the people also traveled in two directions. When I was at the Hill's house, I totally knew where they kept the Hershey's syrup. And when they were at our house, they knew where the Nestle's Quick was. And then moving on up the block at the Lee Master's house, I knew how to use the rope ladder to get into the tree house. And they knew how to call my parents when my brother fell out and broke his arm. And then on up the block, here was our house and here was the McClure's house and literally there was a path worn in the grass between our homes, up and down the street, traffic between the people moved two ways. One time my dad took me and three others to a David Cassidy concert. (laughs) My husband says, all those dads still owe my dad big time. (laughs) One time, no kidding, my brother bought a pregnant mouse at a pet shop. And, and and in not very long at all, this explosion of mice had taken place from that one mother. Well, wouldn't you know Steve across the street had a snake and he loaned it to my brother? <laughs> over and over and over I saw this two way pattern of traffic between neighbors, giving and receiving. We sat down for dinner one night, and I was probably just six or seven years old, and my mom had fixed hamburgers, and I looked, and there was no mustard. Without hesitating one second, I grabbed the top of my hamburger bun, got down from the table, went out the backyard, across the street, up onto Rosemary Collins' front porch, and I pounded on her door, When she opened, I explained the indignity of no mustard. She ran to her kitchen, came back, spread mustard on that hamburger bun. I went home and sat down and ate dinner. And nobody thought that was strange at all. Let me tell you, some 20 years later, I'm living in Columbus, Ohio, and I get this phone call and Rosemary had died. So I drive three hours back to my old neighborhood and I go to her funeral and I spend a couple days just visiting with the old neighbors. And I realized something really vital. Although it had started out with loner snakes and mustard and simple things like that, what had happened among us was something far greater. We had been moved to two blocks worth of people who lived life interdependently. Not dependently, that would be where I'm going to rely on you for everything. Not codependently, that's where I would try to get you to rely on me for everything. But we lived interdependently, where we were mutually relying on each other this weekend we want to examine the art of receiving and what it can do for the good of neighboring relationships and I realize that when we talk about receiving here at church especially it might rub some of us the wrong way we've heard all of our lives it's more blessed to give than receive and no one likes a greedy self-serving person But that's not what we're talking about at all. No, we're talking about living among our neighbors in such a way that we're one of them. Nobody puts on the super neighbor cape and swoops in just at times of crisis. But we're always there. We're one of them, living among them. The art of receiving is when a person says, I want to have mutual friendships with my neighbors. I want us to participate in these friendships together. What seems to have happened with a lot of us is somewhere along the line, we have learned that self-sufficiency is key. That having needs proves we're flawed or feeble or failures. Well, the art of receiving simply says, I not only have something to offer you, but I'm certain you have something to offer me. And the outcome is that we'll be better together than we would otherwise be on our own. Throughout Scripture, God established two-way relating with people. From the Garden of Eden, where he walked and talked with Adam and Eve, through the wilderness wanderings, and when he spoke and communicated with Moses through that burning bush, and how the prophets initiated many conversations between God and people. Bushes and voices and prophets had their place, but the time came when God began to speak to people through his son, Jesus. John chapter one puts it so beautifully and so simply. Jesus became human and made his home among us. He had existed for all of eternity. He was there at the creation. Anything that had life got life through Jesus. But John chapter one explains that just now, Did he become a person and live among people? Picture the moving truck pulling up in your neighborhood or in the parking lot at your apartment. As the dishes and the clothing and the furniture are being unloaded, you go out to meet who's moving in next door, and you realize it's a couple named Mary and Joseph, and they've got this boy named Jesus. That's what John is describing when he says that Jesus made a home among us fully God, preexistent, born of a woman, laid in a manger, and now he's growing in wisdom and stature right next door to you. Maybe Joseph is setting up the carpentry shop by the garage, and maybe Mary is getting the house organized, unpacking the boxes. What if part of God coming to earth to live among us included that Jesus spent his elementary school years in your neighborhood. Can you imagine him playing in sandboxes, riding bikes, shooting baskets with the neighbor kids? Imagine you have him over for lunch and your kids always grumble and complain about the fruits and vegetables, but Jesus gobbles them up. And when you offer him more, he's glad to receive them. After lunch, the kids all go back out to play and you go on about your business, but before long, you hear crying and you go to the door and there you see that the boy Jesus has fallen and hurt his knee. You have no idea he's God, but you see him crying and you grab a Band-Aid, you run out, you wipe his tears, you give him a hug. He receives the comfort that you offer. The scraped knee hurt, but then he picks himself up and goes on and plays with the other kids? Would he play video games with your son? Would he sit vigil and watch for the ice cream truck with my daughter? We have no way of knowing the answers to these questions, but what we do know is that God himself came and made a home among us. Jesus became a neighbor. And there's lots for us to learn about neighboring by watching Jesus, not because he taught seminars or wrote books about it, but because he lived it. He fully and perfectly lived it. It's wild to think that God was a baby, or that he was a boy growing up next door, or that he grew to be a man who hung out with friends. A humble Jesus, a vulnerable Jesus, The Jesus who was willing to practice the art of receiving. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had those 12 guys that were his closest friends, and he did life with them. He taught them, they hung out together, he mentored them, but he was also very willing to receive from them. It's clear when you study scripture that they had two-way friendship going. In Matthew 26, we come to the spot where it's Thursday night and later tonight Jesus will be betrayed. He's just finished dinner and he and his friends walk over to the garden and pick up here in Matthew 26. Jesus took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus vulnerably looked to his friends, to those close by. The way he talks with them indicates that he was trusting them, that he had friendship with them. He asked them to keep watch with him. And then the interesting thing, they would either come through for him or they wouldn't. There's a tension involved when one person asks for help and they wait to see what the other person will do. And Jesus experienced that tension too. He goes on to pray to his father and he pleads that the cup of suffering of the cross would be passed. And then we pick up with the story again in verse 40. Then Jesus returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? There's an honest disappointment in Jesus' voice. He's hurting, Yet, yet he had positioned himself vulnerably with these guys. I want to stop and ask a question. Would your neighbors, would those close by you, describe you as someone who's willing to be vulnerable do they know you as a person who's willing not only to just give but to also receive Brene Brown is an author and a researcher at the University of Houston and she has done more than a decade of research in this area of vulnerability and l- look with me at what she had to say vulnerability is kind of the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness. But it appears that it's also the birthplace of joy, of creativity, of belonging, of love. Dr. Brown's research showed her what you and I could probably have told her. Being vulnerable can wind up getting you hurt. But here's the greater finding, to be vulnerable is also that place at which the true connectedness that we all long for can be born. It feels risky to position yourself vulnerably with other people because it is risky. People can and will let us down. It even happened to Jesus. But oh, the incredible joy of working through the risk to come to that place where we reach mutual Friendship that's two-way. Another question for you, is there a place where you might take a risk with a neighbor? Maybe it's something they've offered before and you turned them down. Or maybe it's something they don't even know you need and you will need to go and ask for help. If you knew that asking for help might open up the opportunity for a two-way friendship, Would you take the risk? Would you be willing to practice the art of receiving? Jesus started out as total strangers with these guys, but they wound up being his closest friends. There were undoubtedly joys and hurts mixed in. That's the way relationships, friendships are. But Jesus made himself vulnerable to those people around him. And there were other times when Jesus humbled himself. He received John's baptism. He wept at his friend's grave. Even hanging on the cross, Jesus asked for water. He said, I'm thirsty. He was God. He could have snapped his fingers and had water arrive. And although he was God, he didn't stop being a person during those years on earth. And so he expressed his need, and then he waited like you and I would need to wait, and he received what was brought to him. This humility we're talking about is when somebody says to another person, I believe you possess something that I don't. As my husband and I were talking about this this past week, Nick brought up an occasion little more than a year ago, where we agreed with our neighbor that we would buy their play structure. Their kids were getting a little big for it, and our kids were just getting big enough. And so, as Nick, being the wise man that he is, as he negotiated the sales price, he built into it that neighbor Jeff would also be involved in the reassembly project over in our yard So the day came and Nick and our neighbor and another friend got in our backyard and it was amazing to watch neighbor Jeff lead the way. He was a whiz at it. And just this week, Nick and I looked out the kitchen window at this incredible play structure and Nick chuckled and he said, you know, if I hadn't asked for help, we'd be looking out at a pile of boards right now. And I said, and you'd have an irritated wife and three upset kids. (laughs) But instead, he's got a happy wife, three happy kids, and he also got that time of manly bonding, doing a job together, getting to know the neighbor a little better. In mutual friendship, we give what we have to offer, hoping the other party will receive it, and then we receive what they offer because we know it's their gift to us. Here's another question for you, and I want you to think long and hard. You don't need to shout out the answer. You don't need to raise your hand. No one will be looking around. Is there even one thing you're not an expert at? (laughs) Can you imagine asking a neighbor to help you with that. By humbly allowing the neighbor to help, it might open up a door for two-way friendship between you. I'm not suggesting we fake a need. I'm not suggesting we go borrow something that we don't need. I mean, if I went next door and got a wheelbarrow, brought it in the garage, closed the door, sat there for an hour, hour and a half, pretending to use it, and then took it back, they'd sniff that out. They would know. We're just talking about when the legitimate need arises, and you can honestly ask a neighbor for help, will you? Would you practice the act of receiving? And what if it is the turning point where you begin to have a more two-way friendship? Jesus received from others, and it opened up incredible opportunities. Luke chapter 7 gives us one of those pictures. There are are others, but Luke 7 gives us a good one. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus had a variety of friendships. Here he is having dinner by invitation in the home of this religious leader when a, a woman of poor reputation comes in and she weeps over Jesus. She pours perfume on his feet. It's quite possible that this was uncomfortable for Jesus, but somehow he knew This was what the woman had to offer, and he received it. The religious people in the room were probably aghast that he was relating so humbly with a sinner. What they didn't know is that Jesus came for sinners, people like us, people like those around us. Jesus could have refused that awkward foot-washing moment, and if he had, most likely he would have come off looking cool, and the woman would have been the one who looked awkward. But Jesus was so concerned about people, he didn't dare miss an opportunity. When he accepted what the woman had to offer, it opened up a further opportunity for conversation. Luke 7, verse 44. Then Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, so picture this, Jesus is looking at the woman, but he's talking to the religious guy. The woman offered to Jesus and he received it. And right here in someone's home, right here in the neighborhood, it opened up an opportunity and further in that passage, we see that Jesus talks about sin and forgiveness and love. He practiced the art of receiving and it opened up an opportunity. There's a crazy thing about some of us. Maybe it's all of us. We truly know and believe that everyone needs to receive a Savior. But then we're unwilling to receive a cup of sugar or a ride to school or help with a project or the offer of friendship. My family and I moved into our neighborhood just about five years ago. And at the time, um, we had a two-year-old and two babies. And there's nothing, when those neighbors came and were bringing us cookies and banana bread and all these well wishes, there's nothing I would have loved more than to put the super neighbor cape on and go flying around Kaiser, getting to know everyone. But that wasn't my option, because I was at home with three babies. Not long after we moved in, just a few months, that terrible winter of 2008 came. My husband was out of town for work, and the snow and the ice came. My kids and I were stuck in the house. Literally, I got out one time in 13 days. During that time that we were trapped inside, a neighbor came unannounced and shoveled our sidewalk, shoveled the driveway, and shoveled the porch. I was humbled, but what could I do? I received it, and I thanked him. And as the concern grew about the trees behind us being so heavy with ice that some of them might fall, I called a neighbor and said, listen, my husband's not here. And if a tree falls on my house, know that I'm in here alone with my three kids. These were humbling times for me, to say the least. Well, it's not just Well, I have little babies because I find that as my kids grow, we Garlingers keep presenting new issues in the neighborhood. We have this thing where our toys and our shoes, our jackets, sometimes even articles of clothing get thrown over the fences on two sides and into the yard behind us as well. And we've had to graciously work with neighbors on all three sides to figure out how to get our stuff back. One time I called our back fence neighbor and I said, Nick and I have come up with a great plan. You're familiar with how bottle deposits work, right? And we said, every time you throw a toy back, we'll give you a nickel. And we thought we were being pretty generous. Nick is fiscally conservative, but we thought it was a pretty generous offer. Well, Neighbor Debbie is way too gracious and way too clever. What she did is on her side of the fence, she hung an empty planter box. And so now, from every now and then, Nick and I just go and reach over, pull all of our kids' stuff out of the planter box, redistribute it back around so that it can be thrown back over again sometime. And this is really embarrassing, but it works until my boys are so tall that they can reach over and grab it themselves. I had to humble myself to call and even start the conversation about the nickel for every toy. But it has brought us to a solution, to a very good one. It's just one of the many lessons I've been learning as I learn to receive. Well a really cool thing, not that long ago, we had sat down for dinner and we started hearing things hit our sliding door and I thought, well, what is this? And I went over and I looked and the neighbors on the back fence were in their yard jumping up and down, waving, throwing pine cones at our door. And I went out and it seems they had been playing volleyball and their ball came over the fence into my yard. Didn't charge them a nickel. I didn't do anything of the sort. I was thrilled. I got their ball, I hit it back to them, and I said, please, hit your volleyball over into my yard anytime. We'll be glad to help you. I go back in, I sit down, I look across the table at Nick, and I said, they need us! (laughs) It was no longer just us needing them. But over time, it became mutual. But it began when we received what they had to offer. These years have been rearranging my life. I went from that little girl who was audacious enough to go ask the neighbor to spread mustard on my hamburger bun, and I don't know if it's true for you, but it seems that adult life has taught me to toughen up, handle it on your own, I'm needing to learn how to receive all over again. It's not something that's comfortable or has come easily for me, but as I've been put in this position and as I'm learning to receive what others have to give, I think God is teaching me how to be a better member of community. Think about Jesus when he became a person and made a home among us. Literally, he had everything to give. But he also humbled himself and he received. And when he did, it threw open the doors of opportunity for many, many, many people to be welcomed into friendship with God. That's what Jesus did when he moved in the neighborhood. What will you and I do in our neighborhoods? I want to close with two questions, and perhaps one or both of these can kind of be a handle, and you can attach it to this message and drag it on into your life with you. Question number one. The next time someone offers to help you with something, will you let them? The next time you have a need, would you go to a neighbor and ask them for help?